Welcome to Elixir Wizards, a podcast brought to you by Smart Logic, a custom web and mobile development shop based in Baltimore. This season's theme is working with Elixir, and today we've got some very special guests on the show, Meryl Dakin and Sophie De Benedetto. How are y'all doing today? Doing good. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Yeah, doing really well. Thanks for having us. So glad to have you both. I'm also joined by my indomitable, intrepid, awesome co-host, Eric Ostrich. Hello. And today we've got a number of questions on the show. We've got a great little outline here to work off of. But first, we've got to know, because Meryl, you work over at Frame.io. Sophie, you work over at GitHub. Why are you on the show together today? How do you know each other? Well, it's a (laughs) wonderful tale. Sophie and I both worked at the Flatiron School on the engineering team together most recently but also have both worked as instructors on different timelines. And we're also both students at the Flatiron School. So that's generally how we know each other. I knew about Sophie before she knew about me because I used her blog posts to teach my students how to code when I was an instructor there. I would add that Meryl is my personal budget as well as astrological consultant and one of the many true loves of my dog. Well, you've both been on the show. When you were at Flatiron, you were both on the show and talking about different topics. And when we did that, we decided we were like, well, we have to have them all at the same time because it's got this great dynamic and it'll just be a lot of fun. But now you guys have like moved on to the next stage of your careers. It's super duper exciting because it's all just happened in the last few months. What are you guys doing at the new spots? Meryl, you're over at Frame.io. Can you tell us what Frame.io is? Yeah. So we actually say it Frame.io. That's the, the way we say it. And what this is, is a video editing collaboration tool primarily. So if you are a video editor and you have a client and you want some feedback on the video you're making, traditionally, you would have to maybe get on the phone with them, send an email, they would be writing back to you the things that they wanted to change about the video. But with this software, you can upload it to the Frame.io platform. The client can go in and comment directly at timestamps and also make annotations on the video itself. So it makes it super clear what they want changed. There's a lot less back and forth. It's become super integral to the workflow of a lot of video editors. And we also have integrations in Final Cut Pro and Adobe Premiere Pro. So there's a lot of cool things that it's expanding towards, but that's the core of the product. Mm -hmm. And what's your role over there that you just started? Yeah, so I just started a little over a week ago. I'm super excited to be a full stack engineer here. Traditionally, their teams have been broken up into front end and back end. So uh, their stack is Elixir and React. And I'm going to be figuring out the, my workflow between the different squads and teams as we're, we're building things and making things more efficient and everything here. Great. And we're very excited for you. Frame.io has been a huge contributor to the community. They're at every conference. Cool logo. I see them. They're advertising their job openings constantly. So I'm sure it's a great opportunity for you. And Sophie just started a job over at GitHub, which everybody's familiar with. But why don't you tell us about your new role, Sophie? So I wish I could tell you more. I actually haven't started yet. I've been on a little bit of a sabbatical for the past three weeks or so. And I'm headed to San Francisco on Monday for the first week of onboarding, which happens at their headquarters. So if you're open to having me on again in a few months, I'm sure I can tell you all about it. Uh, But in the meantime, to prep a little bit, because it's my understanding that the product that I'll be working with is built in Go. I have them learning from Go. It's been fine. You can't see the look on my face if you're listening to this at home. So it's been totally fine. But yeah, I'm excited to learn more. I will introduce you to my buddy, Johnny Borsico, who is sort of like a Go ninja. That sounds great. 
Yeah. And he's also, I don't know if everybody does this, but I frequently like reach out to people on other teams to help me solve problems. And Johnny at my first job at Pavlock, Johnny was like the rails guy who basically did all of my work for me. (laughs) And I can say that now because it's six years later, but I would never have admitted it at the time that he was basically rewriting all my code. Um, Okay, Eric, take us into some real questions here. All right. So one of the things that we wanted to bring you on about was actually about your time at Flatiron. So do you want to tell us about the project that you both worked on? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we were lucky enough to work on a number of things together, but one of the things that I in particular am the most proud of and just honestly learned so much from was a three-month engagement that we did with another company in the ed tech space called 2U, 2U Inc. I'm not sure if anybody out there has heard of it. They partner a lot with uh, universities to provide online classes and they contracted us to provide them with our LMS, our learning management system, as well as our, we call it the in-browser IDE. It's an interactive development environment that's fully in-browser backed by React and Phoenix and WebSockets and Docker. And it's interesting. I don't know if anybody's seen this week, people have been posting a lot about the in-browser Elixir console that I think someone built through the Phoenix Frenzy contest. And it's super cool, but we definitely already have that in the Flatiron ID. So just, you know, something to think about. So anyway, we were contracted by to you to not just kind of hand over a bunch of code with them, but to partner with one of their teams of engineers for just 12 weeks to provide like a brand new, but totally working version of our LMS and in-browser IDE within their infrastructure, which was, you know, wholly unfamiliar to us, like backed by Kubernetes, working with this kind of like educational industry standard API known as LTI. And I completely forget what that stands for, but I'm sure you can Google it if you're interested. And it was really, it was so challenging because we started out with what was sort of an unusual situation, at least in our experience, we had never worked at the Flatiron School like as contractors before. We had never partnered with another team of engineers for like a specific period of time. We were coming into their infrastructure and their ecosystem. We didn't know how to do anything with Kubernetes, for example, anything about this LTI spec. And their team didn't know Elixir like at all. So we kind of were both coming with like half of the knowledge, each of these teams that were coming together that would be required to build and what was a very ambitious project within just 12 weeks. And if I may say so, it was a surprise. You know, not only did we kind of even go beyond what we had intended to deliver in that period, but our teams just bonded really well. You know, we made friends, we learned so many things, we taught each other a lot of things. Kind of looking back, I think about like how ambitious it was when we got started, but how we were able to hit all these marks. And I'm just kind of consistently amazed by it. So how did you end up balancing new feature development since the other team was brand new to Elixir? So how did you balance feature development versus onboarding the brand new team to a brand new language to them? I mean, I certainly have some thoughts on that, but I'll hand it over to Meryl first and have her share her experiences. Sure. So I think that the way that we set up our team workflow was really integral to the success of both developing new features and getting everybody on the same page. We had our tech leads, who are Sophie and one of our colleagues at 2U, really breaking our tickets up into bite-sized pieces that we could easily like get onboarded to and understand, wrap our heads around. They were working really closely with our product managers. And when we got the tickets, especially at the beginning, we were doing a lot of pair programming together. So I mean, the devs over there were amazing and they caught on really quickly, but it was really helpful for us to be pairing together and teaching the language and answering their questions. 
and also learning more about it ourselves because this was pretty new to most of us on our team as well. So I think that that really helped with just having like a lot of the overhead taken away by the tech leads and then really getting to focus on the language and the structures that were new to all of us together. So that helped us bond as well. Yeah, I would say we did very little dedicated education. We mostly did this knowledge transfer through very close pairing and made sure to kind of switch up those pairs pretty frequently and distribute people around the various feature sets or even apps within this infrastructure that we were deving on. And I think what was nice about that is everyone was getting their hands dirty with things that they had like no familiarity with all at once. So it wasn't like this week we're going to learn Elixir and all the people that know Elixir are the experts and the people that don't like you're going to feel stressed out and stupid all week or this week we're going to focus on Kubernetes and everybody that has experience with that is going to feel awesome and everybody that's brand new to it is going to be really confused and stressed out all week. That was not really the approach that we took. Instead, we were just sprinting towards you know, really achievable, small goals each week, each sprint, and making sure that people were just writing code and kind of hacking their way through problems. And again, the tech leads like myself and my counterpart at 2U, you know, who's awesome, who I learned a lot from, we didn't spend a ton of time working on tickets ourselves. We would more sort of go off a little bit ahead of the next sprint and try to clear out some of the major obstacles and make sure we really knew the shape of what we were trying to get done in that time so that we could give the enough guidance to pairs to then deliver on those units of work. And it's interesting because in the beginning, if I looked back at some of the tickets that we were writing, there was like a ton of detail there. Like it was like kind of bossy. Like this is exactly, you know, how you should solve this problem. You should go and look at this resource and you should probably use this library. And, you know, here's how I would write this module. But, you know, I started learning from this and this was a great learning experience for me. That's not a very helpful way to have somebody deliver on something. They're not going to really feel ownership of the problem. They're not going to have time to think it through themselves. And also you as the ticket writer, who's not actually doing the work, is probably wrong. And then the person picking it up is going to have this horrible tension in their head. Oh my gosh, Sophie said I should do it this way. But when I actually tried, like it didn't work because of this bug, but I must be wrong because it says it here on the ticket that this is the approach. So for me to kind of get over that hump of like, what's the right amount of direction and, you know, background information to give my team as we go off into this very unknown territory. So later on in the course of our 12-week engagement, the tickets and the sprints became like much more open-ended, but still we kept things small scale enough with each iteration that we were able to deliver. Yeah. And I think people were stressed out at first coming in and not knowing Elixir and feeling a little bit out of their depth. And then it didn't help that none of us knew each other. And we also had these two groups like, oh, you know, Meryl and I and all a couple of the other Flatiron people, we all know each other and we're together and we're super comfortable together. And then the two you group, same thing on their side. So you have like the people dynamics in the mix as well. And then you throw in the uncertainty about people feeling confused or uncomfortable. So making sure to split up these pairs, like always you have a flattering pair and a 2U pair, especially when it came to working on the Elixir side of things was super helpful. And I'm sure this is something that Meryl can speak to a little bit as well. But on the Flatiron side, we had experience with Elixir and we certainly were not experts in Elixir. I still don't think that we're, you know, Elixir experts. So us having to go into this position of knowledge sharing and providing some guidance and doing some teaching was a great way to take a deeper dive and to really have to learn and understand what we already knew about Elixir and then take it to the next level as well. Yeah, I'll add to that and just say it was really empowering as like a junior developer to come in 
with more knowledge of this language than my senior developer counterpart on the 2U side, because it enabled me to have something of value to bring to them and to help teach them. And that both gave me confidence and also helps me to learn the language better. And at the same time that we were working on this Elixir app, we also had a Ruby app that we were working on. So it was helpful to rotate that because you'd get your footing in Ruby, like both, both people felt comfortable you kind of could establish a dynamic that was useful in your pairing, and then you could swap over to the Elixir app and take it with it. Like, this isn't just like a brand new thing and a brand new person. We were kind of on the same footing at that point. And like Sophie said, switching out our pairs a lot. It was just a huge testament to pair programming, which I'm a big advocate for, especially after that experience. So you mentioned uh, in that knowledge sharing, Sophie, was there any specific techniques that you ended up either discovering or utilizing as part of this? One thing that definitely ended up happening a lot is we naturally gravitated towards wanting to self-organize these lunch and learn discussions. And it was really interesting how it came about sort of organically. And it started happening maybe a couple weeks into our engagement once the teams had started to mesh a little bit better and everybody felt more like they were on equal footing and was feeling like they owned wins together and or feeling like they were confused about the same things. And we were able to have a lot of really productive conversations just in stand-ups and retros about things that we were struggling with and kind of organically grew out of that. We had a number of lunch and learns like brown bag lunches where one person would lead a discussion on or maybe throw a few slides together on some elixir topic relevant to our work that was you know causing some blockers or that folks are struggling with or not even specific to elixir you know let's talk about testing in general and how we're writing our tests in elixir and ruby and what's the right approach here let's talk about design patterns in ruby because we're getting bogged down with a certain ticket etc and it was just cool to see how that wasn't like an idea that I had or our other team lead had or that came down sort of from above. That was something that just happened very naturally as the team got more comfortable with each other, as we all started having a lot of fun just learning so much. And it was cool because it was also another way for us to bond together. We would bring food to share. We would, you know, book a conference room, just be spending more time together. So that was one thing that I really noticed trying to think if there was other stuff too. Another thing we would try to do is we would reserve a little bit of time at the end of every standup to celebrate wins and knowledge share about tickets that had been delivered or features that were built out or patterns that were being applied across the set of pairs. And one of the things that I've always felt like so lucky about working at Flatiron is that so many of the folks on our engineering team are or were teachers also at the Flatiron School. So you have people that are really great communicators, really great at explaining things. This ended up being the case of a number of the folks on the 2U side that we were working with and or they sort of got into that mode a little bit more, you know, working with some of their Flatiron pairs. So we had honestly just like a lot of fun and it kept the energy really high when you start your day by finishing up stand-up and then kind of going into like this cool thing we finished up and here's a little overview of how it works. I'm curious, this experience sounds really interesting in general as like a collaborative experience, right? And I'm curious, in those lunch and learns and all of these discussions that you had, is there anything that you learned from them that really sticks out in your mind as something that changed your thinking on any aspect of programming, either in Elixir or in Ruby? I would say one of the lunch and learns that our tech lead on the 2U side gave was on testing. And I don't know if you remember this, Sophie, I'm sure that it was just like this really amazing testing presentation that he gave. He like gave a little exercise in the beginning. He talked about his philosophy around it. He went into like the different scenarios that he's used it in. It was very tangible, like hands-on approach to it. And it 
it was something that helped us course correct a little bit as we were going through our uh, development process there because we all came from kind of different styles of it. And so it was nice to have these norms being created even in such a short time through these like lunch and learns and sharing of knowledge and kind of getting everyone on the same page and excited about the same thing. So it wasn't like he was telling us that that was what we had to do. But after that lunch and learn, we kind of naturally were all excited about it and could coalesce around this idea that he brought to the table. Yeah, one of the things that I really learned a lot from, we'll go ahead and name Andrew Tang, our counterpart at 2U, who I certainly learned a ton from over that period. I think, I feel like what I really saw him do, and I think the testing lunch and learn is a really good example. What I saw him do again and again is not try to dictate how someone ought to do something, but just kind of plant a seed, lay out a really reasoned and intriguing argument or set of examples that would get you thinking about it enough that you would build up or that we as a team would build up our own norms and our own best practices to kind of get there. So he had this really great knack for never having to tell you like, this is exactly how you do it, or this is how you ought to do it. But just kind of showing you the merits of a certain approach so that you would basically get there. So that's one thing that I learned from him and really, really appreciated. And I think another thing that made this engagement so successful, and again, this is very much due to Andrew, who was really awesome on this project. He had a great analogy that he has about the work that we did as tech leads over the course of the 12 weeks. You know, like when you start playing, what is it like Age of Empires or those video games or desktop games where you're kind of like building out a, a world over the period of time? You know, you start the game and you land there and you just have like a little bit of green that you can sort of see and like everything else is black. And as you like send out scouts and learn a little bit more, you can kind of shine a light on more and more of the map. He really saw that as the role of the tech lead. And that's kind of the role that we tried to play. Not so much like, I know exactly where we're going and this is what you have to do to get there, A, B, C, and D, like, and then you're done. But more like, who can I send out to scout this area and come back with enough information that we can like lay the next set of road? So just this work of kind of slowly, slowly growing the area of knowledge and landscape, but doing it so that we were all building towards it together was, yeah, really, I learned a lot from that experience. And I don't think that's an easy thing to do, but it's now kind of something that I'm thinking explicitly about whenever I go into, you know, any project with any team of people. I love the plug for real-time strategy games. (laughs) I don't really play them, but I have seen, you know, not told Philistine. Well, one of, one of us in this conversation is a pretty big deal in the mud community. So let's move on here. So can you talk a little bit more about this, like Elixir specific challenges that came up during the development of this particular project? Yeah, definitely. I think the hardest thing was, so we were building roughly three separate applications as part of this like ecosystem that we were providing to them. One of them was a portion of our Rails monolith that we were providing to them. That's like our basic LMS learning management system. But the other two pieces were Elixir. The first piece was an Elixir application of Phoenix API that would, I'll take a step back, Our lessons that we serve up to our students through our LMS are often backed by GitHub repositories because we're teaching our students to code, so they should use the tools of real developers. So one of the things that we would have to do as part of this project is to say that, you know, if I'm a teacher and I'm spinning up a new class of 50 students to start the, you know, whatever, intro to Ruby class on June 1st, I need to say that, you know, X number of GitHub repositories are now created to house X lessons for the students in this class. 
So we had uh, an Elixir Phoenix API that would do these kind of bulk repository creations for a given set of lessons, like for a class. So I think what got really challenging for us there was thinking about the right way to leverage concurrency because we got to a point where we'd have to be making a lot, a lot of repositories in one go. So I think we started out with something that was like super, super complex, very inspired by Ruby, so many processes, everything a process. And then we were able to kind of refactor it and scale it back. But actually, I'll, I'll hand it over to Meryl because she gave a talk at MPEX two years ago at this point. No, last year, I think on some of the learnings from this, specifically with our usage of processes. So Yeah, I think that I had previously talked about this a little bit, maybe on this show, but we worked on the first iteration of this project. I think that some of the challenges we faced were not like having all of the requirements figured out at the very beginning. So the way we built it that I'm going to talk about was not the OA that we had, like eventually had put it into the application. But when we were working on this idea of like bulk deployment of lessons, like Sophie said, we had a pretty like complex structure for spinning up these processes that eventually turned into a big supervision tree. And so I think what we kept figuring out as we went along was that we needed more layers of supervision than we did like of just spinning up things without that level of observation that we could have around it and monitoring. But what we learned was that we not only needed something working to spin up processes that were working towards things, but also something to hold like the knowledge of those processes, the state of everything going on. So we had probably like a two layer like supervision tree, I think at some point with dynamic supervisors that could be spinning up processes for all the lessons that we were working on and all the tracks that we were working on getting deployed. And then eventually I think that we like scaled that into uh, pulling that out and like just spinning up a process for every lesson that we needed a student to see. Yeah, I think because the requirements of the project change, we ended up having less of a need for that supervision tree structure. But in the first iteration, it was certainly a really big, I think, learning curve for us. Yeah, I think one of the things that I hear people talk about a lot when they talk about Elixir and fault tolerance is that it allows you to kind of do like failure first programming. And that was a really new way. It still is a really new way for me to think about things. So I feel like once we started to flip our thinking a little bit and think about, well, these are the things that can go wrong in the course of, you know, creating 100 GitHub repos. And this is what we need to happen under each of those circumstances. That's when it kind of became clear to us, if I remember correctly, that not only did we want a dynamic supervisor spinning up a process, you know, for each repo that needed to be created, but we needed another gen server running that would hold the state of the overall process. You know, okay, we've done seven of the 100 and, you know, two of them failed. Now we've done 40 of the 100 and this many failed. So understanding kind of that, I guess, interplay between our state management gen server and the actual workers that were going ahead and creating these repos and figuring out how to send messages between them and figuring out how to hook into, you know, nice gen server API callbacks to deal with success and failure in each case. Once we were able to tell the story like failure first within our own minds, I think it made the design start to fall into place a little bit better. Uh, and then, of course, ultimately, we threw it all away because we didn't need any of it anyway. But uh, requirements change. That's fine. We learned a lot. Yeah, I think that that was interesting, though, that we had to... It, it took us like through all the stages of building out that supervision tree. And at each point, we were like, oh, I think we need something else here. Oh, I think we need something else here. And it was interesting to be a part of because it really took you through like all those cases where like eventually we built it up into this 
tree where it was actually monitoring and spinning up processes and telling us exactly like which lessons failed and why. And so eventually we just were able to see why Elixir is such a great language for that kind of fault tolerance. And that was great. And our last question before we, well, not quite our last question before we move on to something else, but I'm curious, actually, let's just talk about live view. There's live view in this app that we're talking about. I don't think we ended up using LiveView here, but after that engagement wrapped up, Meryl and my team went on to create another new Elixir app in the Flatiron ecosystem. We were able to put some LiveView into production there. Okay. So I want to talk about LiveView because I went to a really, really good training at Elixir <laughs> last year. You don't say. It was really tops. I really enjoyed it. And uh, I'd like to know, like, tell us about your experience using LiveView over at Flatiron, using it in production, what kind of challenges you ran into, that sort of thing. I would actually say that it was a little frustrating, It kind of in a good way. So, you know, the uh, workshop that you alluded to was the workshop that I gave alongside Michael Stalker with the help of some of the other folks at Elixir School. We did, you know, nice, decent amount of prep there and put together, I think it was a one day workshop is when we got to live view. So I was really fired up about live view, right? And this is like in the, not that it's not the super early days, but uh, this was almost pre-release, like just post official release. And I hadn't put really anything live view into production, even of my side projects or even for this workshop, because you know, I didn't really need to. We were playing around with it. We were writing blog posts. We were teaching people, you know, in the classroom at ElixirConf and it was going great and everything works locally. So like, it's probably fine. So I come back from ElixirConf and I'm super excited about LiveView and I'm talking about it endlessly to everybody on the team. And, you know, an opportunity to use it comes up and people are a little skeptical. You know, is it battle tested? Has it really been in production? And I'm like, no, but it's Elixir. It's fine. Also, this is an internally facing tool. Like, let's just do it. And we do it. And it's great. And we're learning a ton. And people on the team are so excited. And it's so cool. And we deploy it. And it works 50% of the time, which was very frustrating. So the feature it backed was we had a background worker pulling RabbitMQ. And if it finishes processing a certain job, it's going to send a message over PubSub, over a PubSub channel or topic, rather, that this live view is going to be subscribing to. The live view should get that message over PubSub and update the page. Should be relatively simple. Again, works 100% of the time locally, 50% of the time remotely. And we really tear our hair out for like honestly two weeks on this. And finally, I kind of say like, we can't spend any more time on this. Like, let's just scrap it and come back to it later. But then one of the developers on our team kind of had this aha moment where she was talking about it with one of our DevOps team members who had helped us build out the infrastructure for this. And we're using AWS currently. And what we sort of piece together over the course of their conversation is that, okay, well, the app is deployed onto two nodes, right? Two containers are running in our ECS cluster, and we have some security groups set up, and the security groups are pretty stringent, they're pretty locked down, and there's no communication between the two nodes of our application. But of course, PubSub needs to communicate like between the two nodes of your application. So not only do you have to configure the range of ports over which PubSub will communicate sort of across nodes of your distributed application. Certainly you have to do that, but you also have to tell your infrastructure, your security group that it can allow traffic over this port range. So with just like, honestly, a couple of characters added to a line in our security group config, we were able to kind of get that working 100% of the time, which was very exciting. But I don't know, it's not the first time that I've been like really fired up about something convinced an innocent person on our team to spend some time building it, get them, let's say, obsessed with it as well. And then they get to tear their hair out for two weeks. So that was fun. 
Yeah, when you mentioned that it was only working half the time, I couldn't help but think about Todd Rosadek and his smart mirror that he built that he stuck on the wall and it's just been working ever since for like a year or something like that. So I was kind of surprised, but no, that's a good reason. Eric, you have any follow-ups on that? Yeah, and I guess not specifically the the live view thing, but I am a little curious about what kind of work went into preparing for a uh, a conference training. It was kind of like not a lot of work, not a lot of work, not a lot of work. And then all of a sudden it was a ton of work. So kind of like a hurry up and wait mentality. I was lucky enough to be working with some super smart people from Elixir School. And if anybody's unfamiliar, Elixir School is a free open source Elixir curriculum that has been translated into so many languages by our many volunteers and contributors around the world. So you should definitely check it out. Plenty of lessons and blog posts and cool stuff on there. And Sean Kalen, I think is how you say his last name, Callen, is a big part of the Elixir community around uh, the country here. Had some connections with Jim Freeze, who puts together the uh, puts together Elixir Comp. And through them, we had set up to do this two-day workshop, actually, on kind of like real-time features and capabilities in Phoenix overall. So we were able to plan day one, kind of just focusing on channels and presence and you know how WebSockets work in Phoenix. And day two, we were able to bring in LiveView, as well as a dash of property-based testing, which uh, Michael Stalker was able to bring to the table. And I certainly learned a ton from that. So we did some preliminary planning. We had months and months and months to prepare. So it's one of those things where you're like, oh my gosh, we have so much time. I don't need to worry about this. And then, you know, you're three weeks out and you're, you know, making a million slide decks. But it was an interesting experience for me because as Meryl mentioned, I used to teach Flatiron School after I graduated there. I was our, one of our TAs, our teaching assistants, and then went on to become one of our lead instructors. So I felt very much like I was kind of slipping back into this old groove of like preparing lectures, putting slides together, putting dummy code together. So yeah, there was something that felt very familiar and very rewarding about it. But being able to collaborate with both Michael and Sean when it came to putting the slide deck together, building out the sample app that we were using with our students, and just kind of being able to get feedback and ideas and contributions from them. It was a really fun partnership and being kind of back in the classroom, so to speak, during that workshop was so fun and so rewarding just seeing people be able to make those connections again. People who pointed out also, I think one of the most fun things that happened is when someone pointed out something that I did not know about LiveView because it was brand new and I was totally wrong about a certain approach. And I got to play around with this brand new LiveView feature that had like just come out, I want to say days before we gave this workshop. So that is always a little nerve wracking, but very rewarding. Meryl, I've got a question for you because you were a student at Flatiron and I'm actually going and I think later you did some instruction as well. Yeah, that's right. So I'm not going to ask the question I've got in the outline. So I'm sorry that I even put that there. I'm going okay. <laughs> to ask a different question. Our latest podcast to get today, actually, we're recording this on the 16th of January. And today we released a podcast that we did with Bruce and Maggie Tate. And one of the things Bruce mentioned as being very difficult in the technical education sphere is sort of like entry level education. Like how do you take someone who doesn't know anything about programming and get them to the point that they're developing for the web? And so they repositioned their strategy. I'm, I'm curious in your time as a student at Flatiron and then as an instructor, did you learn anything that would be useful for teaching someone who is totally non-technical or only like tech savvy, but not exactly technical, how to get into programming? Like what are some 
sort of easy wins or tips, tactics, tricks, strategies, that kind of thing? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that that is like the crux of the question for Flatiron School, actually, because it's literally a career changing device, right? You're taking a lot of people who previously may not have had any interest in programming, aka me, and turning them into somebody that can be a working developer and who actually thrives in this environment. And how do you do that? How do you get, especially like an adult who has had another career to do that? And I think it's kind of what you said in terms of giving people easy wins throughout and giving them something to work with that isn't going to be too much of a mountain to climb right away. So I think that that is one of the reasons why Flatiron School still teaches Ruby as its first language. It's a language that can be understood pretty easily, just like English-wise. It gives you a lot to start out with, and it it also propels you into this phase of like, I can build this website with Rails as my backend and have like a template in the front end pretty quickly. So you, you get those easy wins right off the bat. And I think that that was one of the reasons why when people ask us why we're teaching Ruby, that's, that's, that's part of it. And in terms of getting people into Elixir, either from Ruby or from a non-technical standpoint, you can kind of see some of the same things where if you are able to capture somebody's imagination around this language, if you can show a little bit of what can be done with it and get into even some of the structures around like, why is this cool? Like, why is this exciting that we can do this? Showing like problems and solutions at the same time it can get people really excited about something that they didn't know anything about before. Yeah, I think that those are some of the things that I learned as a student and as a teacher there. And, and then since then, like since I was new to Elixir and coming from Ruby, the reason that I got really excited about it was these new problems that we were facing in, in these applications that I could see we weren't doing, we weren't approaching in the same way with Ruby. And so getting deeper into why Elixir is a language that worked well for those things was so exciting for me. Yeah, I totally agree that it's about kind of teeing up enough wins to get people excited and to give them some sort of control and empowerment when it comes to what they're building. And I think the flip side of that, or like the key part of that is just enough wins or like just enough rails, pun intended, to really get going. Because I think one of the things that we also do really well at Flatiron, and I think this was one of the things that really captured my sort of imagination, my interest as a student was we make it hard. Guess what? It's really hard to learn how to program. And you know what? It's never going to stop getting hard. There's not some magical day where you are enough of a programmer that you don't have to Google something or feel really frustrated or confused or spend a day banging your head against some documentation that just like absolutely doesn't make sense or isn't clear enough. So I think putting students into tough situations, I don't want to say we would throw people into the deep end because I never would want anyone to drown. But challenging them, pushing them, and still giving them enough information to figure something out and to get that win and to fix that bug or solve that problem or get to that next level of understanding. I think that's how you can really teach someone to fall in love with something, to fall in love with coding. And I kind of describe it as like this lost in space feeling like you have no idea what's going on. You want to stay up all night to fix this thing. You're really confused and frustrated, but there's something about it that you now just find so compelling because you know that you can get through it. We've taught you how to get through it. We've taught you how to learn. We've taught you what questions to ask. We taught you what to do when you don't know what to do. And I think that that creates love for something. And that's what we're trying to do with our students. Yeah, I think like once you get someone to the point where they feel that high of achieving a solution, after so long of like beating their head against a wall and, and trying to figure it out, 
once they realize that they can get to that feeling, they'll know that they can get it again and again, because that's essentially what we just do all day. <laughs> do either of you have any resource recommendations for like educators who want to get better at teaching entry level technical skills? I don't know if I do. <laughs> Flatiron should write a book. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think Flatiron should write a book. I always wish that teachers would blog more about teaching, but it's tough because at Flatiron, our teachers are really so busy and so dedicated to their students. I'll keep an eye out. I'll go back through some maybe of our old Flatiron school blog posts and see if I can't find anything interesting for people to check out. I guess I'll plug one since I asked a question. I also went to a boot camp many years ago and a book that they had us read. They had us read a couple books before going into it. And the one that sticks out to me that I actually ended up buying like more recently just to reread was Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. And it's because that book teaches you how to draw without really knowing that you're drawing and teaches you how to learn a skill without really knowing that you're learning a skill. It's just like by putting in the effort and kind of getting into flow and knowing what that feels like, you begin to understand sort of the lower level skill of skill acquisition. But yeah, if you guys can think of anything, tweet at me and tag it in the episode or in the show notes. Eric, do you have any more questions here? Uh, I think we're probably good. Okay. Well, I want to ask a question on, on productivity because both of these people are way more productive than me. And I'm curious, do you have any productivity tricks, tips, hacks, ways to stay focused, ways not to get distracted, which are two different ways of saying the same thing? The floor is open to both of you. I think that the thing that I've noticed about myself is that, I, and I think that this is pretty common when you start working on something that is really complicated and feels like it needs a lot of your brain power, the longer you work on it, sometimes the worse that it, you get <laughs> because you start getting this diminished capacity to be able to really see the forest for the trees. And the longer you're inside of it, the closer you think you're getting to the answer when really you just keep maybe getting it more and more uh, complex. And so something that I've started to figure out about myself is that I really need mental breaks in terms of that kind of like, when I need a mental break in terms of that kind of complexity, what I'm really looking for is people engagement because I'm a pretty like extroverted social person, which is not everybody's thing and totally personal. So if you're an extroverted programmer, <laughs> my suggestion is like, I will go out to the kitchen and find some people to talk to. I'll text my friends and just like start joking about something completely different. But I really need to remember that I need that mental break and that space in the way that I gain energy. So like if, if you're maybe more of an introvert, like the thing that you might need to do is take a walk or like just be alone or something like that. But to come back and be really focused, I need breaks to make it happen. I can't just like stay in one spot and muscle my way through because that's not how your brain works, it turns out. Yeah, I would, I would totally echo that. I think like if you're sitting there and you're losing focus and you can't figure something out and you really, really don't want to do it, you should stop doing it. You should get a coffee with the person sitting next to you. Yeah, you should go out to the kitchen, whatever. And I think that's one of the things that I so loved about working at Flatiron, whether it was as a teacher or on an engineering team. The community was so great. Everybody really supported each other and just honestly had fun together. So if you're flagging, if you're fading, you know, you just turn to your friend sitting next to you and, you know, you share a joke, you whatever, get a coffee, get a glass of water, go for a walk and, and you get re-energized, which I really love. When it comes to kind of outside the working day, I think really the same thing applies, which is just that 
if you really can't focus on something and if you really don't want to do it, then just don't do it. There's going to be something else out there that's probably going to capture your imagination and kind of spark your interest. And it's okay to stop doing something and take a break and maybe put it down and try to pick up something else. I think everybody's different and what they're going to find engaging. Everybody's different and what habits work for them. I'm kind of a weirdo. I wake up really early sometimes, weekdays, like maybe 5, 5.30, spend a few hours in the morning, you know, doing some writing, doing some learning, whatever's on my mind. And I found out that that worked for me after trying like years of different habits. So I think try different things. And if it's not working for you, just stop. Yeah. I think like something you said too, like capturing somebody's imagination. If I'm trying to work on something in particular, like I've got to focus on writing this code in this section, or I need to make a presentation on something. I remember thinking about it sort of like when I was writing essays in college or something, and I would like, I would have a hard time starting at the beginning. So instead of like starting where you think you should start, just start at the spot where you're most excited about. And so for me, like last year, putting together like the MPEX presentation, I was actually just really excited about this idea I had about making an analogy between Elixir processes and spies. And so I started by like actually just drawing my slides like making stick figure drawings that I knew I was going to include and incorporate. And from that, like emanated the code snippets that I wanted to use and the slide information and and everything like that, that came from that. But I think you need to like be aware of your own, like what's intriguing you the most and start there instead of forcing yourself to start from somewhere that doesn't feel natural. Because once you find that first starting point, everything sort of like will, will come around that and your focus is going to be, I think a lot better because you're already excited mm. by something. Yeah. Yeah. I'll echo the paper and pencil. I feel like that's a pro tip. Yeah. It's really, really, for me, we were just making jokes on our internal Slack about how I'm always like writing notes on a paper pad. Okay. Well, that's all we've got. And I want to give you the opportunity to make any plugs or asks for the audience. Meryl, why don't you go first since we are, uh, we've got a special event coming up that we will both be in attendance at. Yeah. So I am going to plug the Ruby Elixir Mixer, which is going to be at Taloner. Is that how you say that? I think so. Taloner. Okay. Taloner. Great. So that is going to be on February 6th at 630 And it's going to be a place where Ruby people and Elixir people, two amazing communities, can come together and talk about Ruby, talk about Elixir. I'll be speaking about transitioning from Ruby to Elixir. And we have another speaker. I'm going to say his name. Matt. Matt Clark from Etsy. Yeah. He's going to be talking about Ruby. So, and I believe that Matt is also a bootcamp grad and now working at Etsy. You're working at Frame.io. I think that it's a, you know, I'm working at Smart Logic. So these are all plugs for bootcamps. Bootcamps are great. And that's going to be a great event. New York City. If you're in New York City, you're listening to this, please come out to Taloner on the 6th. I'll be tweeting about it. So hit us up on Twitter if you want the deets. Uh, Sophie, what about you? Do you have any plugs, asks for the audience? I do have one plug, but first I'll just echo yours and Meryl's for the Talent or event, and I'll just keep the pressure on Meryl a little bit. Meryl's presentations are generally hilarious and engaging and charming. I have seen her present a slide deck that was Mulan-themed that ended in a YouTube video where we all sang along to I'll Make a Man Out of You, and it was one of the highlights of my professional life. So a Meryl presentation is not to be missed. And I'll also mention that the uh, MPEX NYC conferences, CFP is open. I don't know if you guys would put a link in the show notes or anything like that. Y'all can just Google MPEX NYC and check it out. We are a one-day, one-track conference on 
Elixir and Erlang and functional programming. We're kind of like a cool conference, if you know what I mean. We take place at a jazz club. There's a piano, live music. It's a pretty good time. And please submit your proposals. We want to see them. And I will echo that it is a cool con- I mean, I didn't go, but I know the Desmond and he's like just a cool guy. And I know he wouldn't do anything that wasn't cool. So he's kind of like the human <laughs> personification of cool. MPEX is amazing, and it's actually where I met my future colleagues from Frame.io. So, wonderful place. Thank you, Sophie, for being part of it. It's amazing. I think he'll be so thrilled if he ever hears this (laughs) (laughs) Well, y'all are amazing. Really appreciate having you on the show. That's it for this episode of Elixir Wizards. We've been so glad to have Meryl Dakin and Sophie Benedetto on the show. My co-host, Eric Ostrich. Thank you, Eric, for being the man and really keeping this train running. Elixir Wizards is a smart logic podcast here at Smart Logic. We're always looking to take on new projects, building web apps and Elixir, Rails and React infrastructure projects using Kubernetes, mobile apps using React Native. We'd love to hear from you if you have a project that you think we could help you with. Don't forget to hit that like button and that subscribe button on your favorite podcast player. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. Just look up Smart Logic. That is us. You can find me at Justice Epen on all the platforms. Eric, you have socials? Yeah, I'm uh, at Eric Ostrich and Ostrich on GitHub. Very cool. Hit us up. We'd love to hear from you. And actually, we've been getting lots of fan feedback. I don't, I don't know. I shouldn't call you fans. You're just colleagues, really. And awesome. Super duper cool people. We love hearing from you. Join us again next week on Elixir Wizards for more working with Elixir.